I really believe that when people have certain life experiences and they're ready, that's the kind of that's the time to have conversations with them. It's it can't be sort of forced upon them to change. Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Exvangelical Podcast, where being labeled a heretic is a good thing, if it means refusing to conform to toxic, harmful expressions of faith. We address your questions about God, politics, how we got here, and how to move forward. Nothing is off limits in our conversations with scholars, spiritual seekers, and activists in our quest to uncover the heart of faith. We're your hosts, Melanie and Gary Ellen, and this is Holy Heretics. Before we get started, we have something brand new that we wanted to tell you, our listeners, about first. For so many of us who really find ourselves questioning the faith we were given, the Bible really becomes a sticking point. Can we even trust it? Is it inerrant? If it's not, does that mean we should just totally throw it out? Should we even read it anymore? If so, how do we read it? And what about all the different translations? I mean, the questions can become overwhelming and really confusing. And so because of our own questions, we started digging and then decided to turn all our research into a live course that we're calling Making Sense of the Bible Post-Deconstruction, and we will be debuting it in July. Because we want this course to have time for questions and dialogue, we are only opening it up to our Patreon supporters, and it's on a first-come, first-served basis. So between now and June 30th, 2021, if you become a monthly Patreon patron, we will reserve your seat for the course. So head to our website, which is holyheretics.org, and click on the button that says support on Patreon, or head straight to patreon.com slash holyheretics to become a patron of any amount and reserve your spot before they're gone. Now let's get started. Today we have the honor of speaking with biblical scholar and professor Dr. Peter Enns. Dr. Enns received his PhD from Harvard University and he speaks and writes regularly about the intersection of the ancient setting of the Bible and the contemporary Christian faith, which is something we know that many of our listeners are interested in. And he hosts the popular podcast, The Bible for Normal People, which we highly recommend for anyone who wants to know if the Bible can actually fit into faith after deconstruction. Uh, I've learned so much by listening to his podcast and as well as reading his books. And he also blogs at PeteEnds.com. And like I said, he has written, edited, and contributed to over 20 books, including The Sin of Certainty, The Bible Tells Me So, and his most recent book, How the Bible Actually Works, which is phenomenal. So welcome, Pete. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you. And just getting back to what you said at the beginning, it's an honor to have me. It definitely is. And here's why. <laughs> Twice this week, I left the lights on in my car and I drained the battery. I had to get jump started. And I also was walking in my bedroom. And I don't know how I did this, but I tripped over my bed. Wow. Think about that for a second. So, so that's, that's the kind of guy you've got on your podcast right now, just <laughs> a guy who can't walk and is an idiot when it comes to leaving you know, your lights on in the car. So, I, I mean, anyway. I feel you. I walk into like corners and like the sides of doors all the time. Yeah. So I feel. But I tripped over my bed. Now, to be, to be, I mean, I have to give myself some credit here. How, how tall the are you? The you mattress get to do that. was off. I had to fix something. The mattress was off. So I tripped over the frame, oh. but I landed. I did a face oh. plant. I just, I don't know. Why am I talking about this? <laughs> Are you okay? I should be lying it's, about myself. That's the question. Yeah, it, I'm fine. Yeah, I'm it, fine. It's, yeah. Build, it's, it's building credibility with our audience. That's that's what it is. <laughs> yeah, so. or not. Yeah, that's the thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, besides all of that, we, we're still yeah. honored to have you. And I, I am, I've been impatiently waiting to talk to you about the Bible for months now, uh, once we set this up. And honestly, mostly because I really struggle with the Bible. Um, I think like most of us in the deconstruction community, I find large portions of it either unworthy of my attention or frustrating or really confused with the God of the Old Testament compared to the meek and mild and, you know, peaceful Jesus or how the Bible has been used as a weapon to discriminate against women or our LGBTQIA plus friends and families. And so 
Ah, I, I guess I'm just really, really in need of this conversation myself, um, especially because so many of us were told how and when uh, and what the Bible was. And it, it seems from some of the things we've read of yours that a lot of that information has been wrong. So maybe we can just sort of start with the basics. Um, okay. What is the Bible and what are we supposed to do with it? <laughs> Starting easy. <laughs> and and define God and give three examples or something. So yeah, yeah okay. right, right. Um I see I think here's the thing. What is the Bible and what are we supposed to do with it? I have come to believe that those questions are actually part of the theological quest. They're not the things you settle first so they can get on with it. That is what you do as you think through things. And when I say theological quest, I don't mean like experts necessarily, it includes them, but anybody, you know, thinking through what is this book anyway? And what do we actually do with it? What does it mean to read it well? I think those are, again, the the, the things that fuel the the journey of faith. And, and we shouldn't think we can come to conclusions on those things so quickly. Okay. So <laughs> Yeah. Now now I could tell you what I think it is right now. I mean I mean this yeah, may change yeah. in the weeks to come. But so um for me I've I've come to see the Bible as a <sighs> I I sometimes call it a means of grace, a, a means by which we can commune with God. Mm. But it's not a book that tells you what to do or what to think or even what to believe even when it does you still have to do some a lot of thinking to translate all that into your own context the bible doesn't work well as a as a rule book it's it's more of a, a book of wisdom as as i like to put it so um i think that is one way that the bible functions but as you know what what is the bible you know what like what is it? What are we looking at? I think we're looking at a collection of writings that each one has its own unique history and written at different times and sometimes multiple times, uh, different places under different circumstances by writers who had reasons for writing what they did. And I think we're seeing there people's honest uh, expressions about what it means to answer the big question of faith, which is what is God like. And we see disagreements, and we see contradictions at times between different authors. We see debates within the Bible itself, both Testaments. And we have this interesting and I think really beautiful collection of texts that model for us our our own journey of faith. Hmm. And you know, I'm trying to avoid language like inspired or revealed or authoritative, because all those things, they mean so many different things. I'm just trying to come at it from a different angle. And say that these are, we're seeing here reflections on the part of real humans living over time. And that collection of writings has become a means of grace for people of faith for a couple thousand years plus now. Hmm. And I'm fine leaving it at that. Um, that leaves me room to debate with the Bible, to sometimes interrogate it, which is perhaps more common in Judaism than it is in Christianity. It uh, doesn't have to be and wasn't always like that, but it, it seems to be. Um, it's, it's a book where, you know, we, we read it and engage it as a means of answering some of those big questions, like what does it mean for God, for the Spirit of God to be right here with us right now? How does that affect our ethic? Mm. How does it affect how we act towards other people? So, I mean, I, and I think that how it's interpreted when it has that ethical dimension in mind is a really good place to be, even if people will disagree, right, on what some of those ethical conclusions might be. I understand that. Um, so that's sort of, you know, my little roundabout way of answering that very, very important question that I think we need to keep asking ourselves on a regular basis. Yeah. I. So you said... Um, that like, I have seven more hours of this stuff <laughs> if you want me to go on. It's not a problem. Well, <laughs> so you said like you, in Judaism, there's a tradition of interrogating the Bible. What about disagreeing with it? Is that like, 
I was taught you either you believe every single word and you believe, like you said, that that word, it's authoritative and it's inerrant. There are, you know, it's divine. God basically wrote it. So yeah. then what about if you read something and you're like that? That sounds or how Gary Allen mentioned the God of the Old Testament sounds pretty terrible. Is it OK to disagree with it or is that not still not OK because it is God's story? I don't even know the words right. to use at this point. No, I think those are great words to use. I, and I think you're really clear on what you're asking. The, um, I, I get the theory, right? This is a book from God, and therefore you can't uh, disagree with it. You can't argue with it. Um, but the, the problem there is that within the Bible itself, you see people disagreeing with each other and offering different portraits of God at different places and different times. And I find that to be very, very fascinating. It seems to me that part of what the Bible is encouraging is for us to continue that sort of um, a mindset, I guess, of, you know, engaging, trying to figure the God question out, right? And what that means for our lives. That's an ongoing process of back and forth, up and down, in and out, and it's not something you just look at verses and say, well, just do that, because there are other verses that put things very differently. And I, I think the Bible is even, if I can put it this way, I think the Bible is even designed, so to speak, to make sure we never turn it into that sort of one-stop shopping for every question we have that gives us a quick answer. Mm. So how do we get to that point of turning it into that one-stop shop for quick answers? Well, I think we've gotten to that point. I mean, I think that's a very interesting, actually, historical question. And I have my own little take on it that I've picked up from other people. But um, some of this sort of rests on the shoulders of the Protestant Reformation, which rejected the whole Catholic thing, right? Mm -hmm. And sort of put the Bible in its place and, and it put the Bible in the place of, let's say, papal authority or or magisterial authority had a system in Roman Catholicism. And yeah, there were problems with Catholicism back then. I think people pretty much recognize it across the board. But when you replace it with the Bible, it then becomes something that you don't get to engage, let's say, creatively, but it's something you have to figure out exactly what it means. And if the Bible is your authority, well, this is what, then this is sort of God speaking to you directly in this mm -hmm. book. And, you know, before the Reformation, I think things were more wonderfully complex because you had, you know, pretty much well understood throughout the medieval period that the Bible doesn't have just one meaning. It has multiple mm -hmm. meanings, and they're all happening at the same time, and they're not the same thing, you know. So, um, and that's a lot of Jew Jewish history as well, looking at multiple meanings and multiple dimensions of text. With the Reformation, when the Bible becomes your standard of authority, your standard of doctrine and life, you can't play with the text like that. And you certainly can't see contradictions or um, tensions between parts of the Bible. And I think that sort of began things. And, you know, then as time went on, you have you know, a real influx of, let's just say, secular thinking about the Bible with the Enlightenment and, and afterwards. And, you know, when, when the Bible became an object of like academic study and um, they came up with very different conclusions than people of faith might have come up with. And that just sort of just people dug their heels in at that point saying, you see, we can't let those people determine what the Bible is. We have to stick to our guns. And read it as that rule book, and and your whole life depends on it. You know, I mean, both of you have experienced. I've I've seen it too many times. That if if um if you have a Bible that isn't that sort of ironclad, not to be argued with rule book, when you start reading it carefully, you're going to run into some problems. Yeah, and that's right. the irony of it. You know, the irony is that you, you have a you know, what theologians call a doctrine of Scripture, that Scripture itself doesn't support really very well. So just to be clear, inerrancy 
we're we're talking about inerrancy, right? <laughs> I, yeah, yeah, I guess we are. Um, yeah, some form of inerrancy and and the views of biblical authority that sort of stem from that, which is um, you never argue with it, mm-hmm. right? You never you never disagree with it. You never you're not allowed to say in the quiet of your own heart. I'm not sure if I like this at all right here. What I'm reading. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. We're we're trying to teach our kids that, and um, they're reading through Joshua right now. And our middle daughter, who's 13, um, she's like, I, I just don't, I don't believe this. I don't like this. Mm-hmm. I don't think God ordered the genocide of all these people. So is it okay if I just don't believe this? And I'm like, wow, I, I wish someone would have given me space at 13 to right, say, right. I disagree with this mm-hmm. because this doesn't look like the God that is best represented in, you know, in Jesus. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's a, it's a different way of And, of and not only that, scripture. Gary, but it's, it's not, it's not only that it's, I agree with that completely, but it's also letting young people know, first of all, that is an excellent observation and question that you're asking. And you need to know that people have been asking this very same question about this very same story for a long time. And people come up with maybe different points of view. But yeah, I agree that this doesn't describe the nature of the creator of the infinite cosmos, you know, going into that neighboring land and and take it and kill everybody. So let's talk about that real quick, because that kind of hints at this literal and historical view of the Bible that most of us grew up with, that you read the Genesis account literally, you read the Exodus as a historical narrative, you read the flood as a very literal and historical um, thing that actually happened in the space-time universe. And in your book, The Bible Tells Me So, if I remember, because I read that several years ago, you actually argue that the attempts to defend the Bible on those terms that, you know, the stories we mm-hmm. read are literally are, are literal and historical have almost made it impossible for us to actually uh, to receive the Bible because, you know, do donkeys actually talk? Do, do serpents tempt, you know, beguiling women? I mean, <laughs> I, I guess I will say that there is still enough evangelical in me to believe that the Bible uh, takes history um, as something important, and it does feel like a lot of these stories are potentially rooted in historical fact. But can you help us like move away from this reading? Um, and so, if we're if we aren't supposed to read Genesis as literal and historical, or the flood, or maybe even the Exodus, how do we read those stories? And what how does that change the way we? Uh, interpret and engage engage scripture. Yeah. I, I do think a lot of it has to do with the expectations that we come to the Bible with and the expectations that a lot of people are expected to come to the Bible with are assumptions of like, well, if God wrote this, it has to be historically accurate mm. and it has to be rooted in quote facts. And I mean, not to go too deep into the weeds here, but those are very modern assumptions about the nature of history and the nature of history writing. And I mean, I think you talk to most historians, biblical or otherwise, and they'd say, yeah, people, when they talk about the past, even they're highly interpreting it. They're not just giving you facts, they're weaving a narrative. Mm -hmm. And a narrative is an intellectual creation. You know, we we have narratives of let's say the reigns of the kings, you know, in in the books of first and second kings, and I, they're rooted in history. There's no question about it. But the story we're reading is an interpretation of history, because every time you write history, you're interpreting something. Hmm. So we we have a problem of history from the outset. You can't escape it. And again, the 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 again, not to get too far afield on this particular issue, but um, again, comparing the story of the kings in, let's say, Samuel and Kings to the books of First and Second Chronicles, you're going to be struck with some pretty significant differences, very, very strong differences in how they even present that history. And to me, that's a lesson that we can take into things like Genesis or Exodus that the writing down of the past is not like an objective science, get the facts right. 
you're always talking about the past for the purpose of the present time. That's why people tell history. They want to say something about their own moment. So I guess that's to me, that's like almost a big background issue for people to struggle with, I think. And and it's worth struggling with because it's, I think it's very true. Hmm. Um, But, you know, um, so reading Genesis as literal history is not the default correct way of reading the Bible and every other way has to be defended. That view has to be defended. And it's very hard to defend it once you start reading it. How so? Well, and once you start looking at science, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. Once you once you engage these things in the context of a lot of other things that we know in our world today, it's really hard to read Genesis chapter one um, as being an accurate description of how the physical universe came about. Because we're always, I mean, this is not just like the problem of people like us living today. This is, this has always been the problem with the Bible. It's reading these ancient words in a totally different context than when they were written. Mm -hmm. And you always have to work through and ask yourself, you know, what is happening here? Does this make sense historically? And it's not like, you know, God can't do miracles. So you discount miracles. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about the nature of the stories themselves. And the first thing, I mean, even with Genesis, just looking at the first two chapters and how they really do depict the creative act very differently. You know, in the first story, you have humans are the last thing created and sort of en masse after all the animals, well, what's the story of Adam and Eve? It's one man, Adam, and then the animals, because they were supposed to be his companion, but that's not working out. So God says, I know what I'll do. I'll put you to sleep, and I'll, I'll grab your side, and we'll make a woman. So you have one man, animals, and then one woman. It's a, That right away is, is an order you can't really reconcile with Genesis right. chapter mm-hmm. 1. So just, just paying attention to the details in English, forget Hebrew and all that stuff, just paying attention to the details, <laughs> leads you to ask the question, at least, are these stories what I would characterize as a historical representation, or are they doing something else? Hmm. Because they are very different. I mean, I tried to have this conversation with one of my friends the, uh, the other day, and I said, well, she was asking me about inerrancy, and do I believe in inerrancy? And I said, well, I, honestly, I don't really even know what that word means, but... I do struggle with that because I said, you know, when you just flip the page in the Bible, it goes off script. We have two creation stories, and they don't um, coincide with one another, you know, in in frequency, in the narrative, and how and when Mm -hmm. things happen. And she's like, well, that's not true. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's like, well, well, um, have you right. read the Bible? Like, it, it doesn't yeah. function the way you want it to function, yeah. and maybe they well, are. They've read it through a lens, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, and or so, yeah. One and, of the things that I was talking with someone about was kind of the authorship stuff of like the Torah or the Pentateuch, um, and yeah. you know, the traditional teaching is that Moses wrote all five books, um, and I was talking with someone who was doing some sort of Bible study and they, it had referenced that. And they were like, what did your book say? Because uh, I read um, Who Wrote the Bible by Richard Friedman, I think is his name. And it talks yeah. about the authorship. And they were like, what did your book say about who wrote it? And I was like, well, kind of a lot of people. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, they were like, well, uh, I don't know. I, I, I still think that God would have been able to to like inspire one person to write it i was like well but it specifically refers to moses's death like where it happened when it happened how it happened Mm -hmm. where he's buried so how could moses have written that and they were like well god could have inspired him to to write it before he died and then you're like now what i can't help you yeah (laughs) right well no and and the thing is if that's where people want to go with that that's that's their business As long as they don't sign your paycheck, you know, I mean, if, if this is just a <laughs> relationship right. you have, pe- people can believe that if they want. To. It doesn't bother me in the slightest if people believe that. I mean, I might push back a little bit and say something like, you know, at the very end of Deuteronomy, it also says, uh, and no other prophet like Moses has arisen ever since. Mm-hmm. There's a really good chance Moses didn't write that. 
that makes <laughs> th- that assumes a long uh, passage of time where Moses was the best prophet ever. It's, that sounds to me like it's written during the period of the monarchy where you have prophets running around. Either that or and he was that's exactly what it either that like. or he was really narcissistic and just was hoping that everyone would believe that. <laughs> well, right. Yeah. No, no, Moses was more humble than any man on the face oh, of the earth. That's in the book true. of Numbers, right? And <laughs> and I and I've and I've heard people defend and I understand when when you come at the Bible from like Moses wrote the Pentateuch and it's an errant, you have to find a way to defend these kinds of things. And the defense that I've heard, even in seminary, I heard, well, if Moses really is the most humble man on the face of the earth, then it's not arrogant for him to say that he's the most humble man on the face of the earth. And it's right. You follow huh. that? And it's like, OK, yeah. if, if you believe that, go ahead. Yeah. But to me, that creates so many other mm-hmm. problems. And you know, the very fact that to me, the biggest one is the Bible, the, Pen- the Torah, the characters that are mentioned. You know, it's about Adam. It's about Noah. It's about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's about Moses. They're in the third person. The only place where you really don't have a third person is the list of speeches in Deuteronomy, but that's still framed by a third person narrative. It's, you know, it begins by saying these are the words Moses spoke on the other side of the Jordan. Hmm. Right? So Moses died on the east. I'm going to get my compass right here. On the east side of the Jordan, he never made it to the promised land. Whoever wrote this is writing it down after the time of Moses on the part of the uh, on the side of the Jordan he never got mm. to. Right. I mean th- these these are not th- these are not mysterious <clears throat> insights. These are things that people have talked about long before the modern period. Mm. Long before this is this is not new stuff. The question of Moses writing every word of this is a deeply problematic and flawed theory. Now, could Moses have written things? Sure. Who knows? We don't know who wrote some of this stuff. But there are things there that just are so much later than the time of Moses. It would have made it would make no sense. And to appeal to prophecy is, I think, just trying to make the Bible fit a theory rather than trying to get your theories from how the Bible behaves. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, so if if my my evangelical self is asking questions here because I I care about the Bible. I just don't know how to care about it if if I don't read it as divinely inspired and authoritative and inerrant because that's all I was taught. So if it's not this rule book uh, for all people of all time, I think is how you mentioned it and how the Bible actually works. And if it's not meant to be this like encyclopedia where we just can find the answers for any situation that we could ever find ourselves in. What function can it serve now? Like, should we even read it? You know, where, where do we go if we lose what we thought was like the essence of the Bible? Right. I, I think then it becomes a matter of finding a different essence of what the Bible is. And that takes time. And I think for some people, they really do have to walk away from it for a while because there's so much in their past where there's only one way to do this. And now I'm sort of seeing the holes and I don't know what to do with it anymore. And I think, you know, one thing that I would sort of suggest to people in that place is, first of all, it's okay to be where you are because you're coming out of something that has had a powerful grip. And now you're asking, okay, well, how can the Bible continue to be sort of life-giving and life-sustaining for me? And I would say, and this isn't to be cute or anything, but I'd say it's actually God who's life-sustaining. It's not the Bible. Mm-hmm. The Bible is used to be life-sustaining. And don't expect all of the Bible to speak to you in some wonderful fashion, because some parts you struggle with, but other parts are like, no, I actually see myself in these pages. Which is what I think, again, the beautiful thing about the Bible is that it's so diverse, and people do gravitate to different parts of it where you just recognize yourself in this story, or in this person, or in this letter that Paul writes. And that's a way of allowing the Bible to be a a means of coming into God's presence and communing with God. It's a more functional view, right? It's not, 
okay, I know the Bible's authoritative. It tells me what to do, and I have to be- I have to believe and do every last thing that it says. That's very stressful, mm-hmm. and it usually falls apart at some point in your life. You know, again, if you engage it on a certain level. But if we think of it more as a way that we can come to God and, you know, taking the story seriously, I mean, even the stories we don't like, taking them seriously and asking ourselves, how can I relate to this? And sometimes we say, I can't. That's okay. You may in 10 years. You may next week. You don't know what's going to happen to you, right? I mean, just, you know, the Psalms are, you know, what John Calvin called the mirror of the soul. They mirror back to us the range of emotions, which I think is a good way of thinking about Proverbs. Um, I don't know if I'll ever get anything really out of First and Second Kings. <laughs> you know, you know, I mean, I, I'm not trying to be funny. I mean that because hmm. from a historical point of view, from the point of view of like, you know, how is the Bible written? Why was it written the way that it was? That, that That's, those are great questions to ask of that. but. I get it. I mean, each of these kings, for the most part, are horrible. Monarchy is a disaster, and don't worship other gods. And if you do, then God will eventually run out of patience and punish you. I don't know what to do with that in terms of, you know, applying it to my life or something. But that's me. Mm-hmm. See, I mean, other people might see something, and that's fine, right? But and we don't have to agree how these different portions of Scripture can relate to us, or we can relate mm-hmm. to it. So I have noticed, um, at least in my past and, and even in larger versions of American evangelicalism, there is a, a an almost idolatry of the text that we've elevated the Bible to the fourth God of the Trinity. You know, it, it, it can't be questioned. It, it, it can't be argued with, as you just said. It can't even be set aside for long periods of time because somehow you're um, you know, doing something evil by just saying, look, I can't read this right now. Um, so we've danced around this a lot so far, but I, I want to get to maybe an even more particular question, uh, because I see this over and over again when I hear people say, well, you know, the biblical definition of marriage or the biblical definition of sexuality or the biblical definition of you know x y and z uh i don't i don't like that on any level but i don't know why i don't like it so <laughs> if 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 the bible is supposed to be this authoritative thing then why can we not go to it and find answers about sexuality or marriage or politics or economics is is that too simplistic of a question? I mean, have we already asked that <laughs> and I've just missed it? I, I just really struggle with that use of the yeah. Bible as, well, just go and find it and see, you know, Adam and Eve or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not Adam and Steve. So right, I, I right. think, you know, the, um, I mean, I under, again, I understand the desire to have a Bible that functions in a way that you can go to it to say things like the biblical view on. I understand the appeal to that, and it would be really great if that worked consistently, but it really doesn't. I think there are some things that do work that way, you know, like um, the biblical view on loving your neighbor. It's do it. (laughs) And who is my neighbor, whoever you come across, right? I I think I can make cases for that. Now, I don't exactly know what it means to love my neighbor in a particular way at this moment. I have to figure that out. Mm. But still, we can talk about like biblical principles or things like that. But the, um, the, the problem, as I see it with that approach, is that the Bible really does speak very often, more often than we might think, on the same topic, but in various ways. And in other cases, it talks about topics in ways that would, I think, deeply concern us. You know, um, like Paul says, you know, children obey your parents and everything. I get that as a good principle, but I can think of all sorts of reasons where kids need to flee their parents. You know, in, in, in abuse cases, for example. And no, you don't listen to them. And, 
you know, right. slaves obey your masters. I mean, do whatever they tell. No, you know, there, there are there are issues in the Bible that, you know, the biblical view is deeply problematic. It's problematic morally. It's problematic historically. And again, I'm not saying anything new here. This is something that, you know, people who study this stuff and pour over, they've been telling us that for, for literally centuries upon centuries. There are things here that we have to think about and work through. But again, I understand uh, um, the draw of that. But unfortunately, I don't think the Bible works well that way to be drawn on that way. I think the reliance isn't on, you know, the clear teaching of Scripture, as sometimes people put it, but it really is on our immediate experience with God and doing that with humility and learning over the course of our lives with the Bible and with community and with all a bunch of other things, what it means to live this life well. And the clear biblical teaching, again, it's, I can give you the clear biblical teaching on a lot of things that probably we would never think of doing. <laughs> like loving our enemy, right? Yeah. Well, again, loving your enemy, that's that's challenging. And again, what does it mean to love your enemy? Mm. And that's that's not an easy thing always to discern, but the idea is there. And, you know, we just sometimes, that voice inside of us, we know when we're not doing that. Mm. Mm. <laughs> and we feel a little bit guilty, and that's probably a healthy guilt, right? Right. But the Bible has also traumatized people, at least the use of the Bible. I don't think the Bible can possibly traumatize anybody. It only traumatizes you if you approach it a certain mm. way. And I think the Bible has been used to traumatize people. And and that's a whole different uh, level of needing to like re-engage this text. So, okay, I'm trying to think of how those in my life who are not ready to grapple with the idea that the Bible isn't inerrant or or at least hearing it for the first time and how they might respond. And I think one thing that it seems like letting go of inerrancy does is it says like, well, you there is no correct way to interpret or read the Bible. It's just between like you and God and it sounds kind of new agey. Mm -hmm. Um and and so they would reject it immediately based on that. Like no, there has to be one right way to read the bible and mm -hmm. no i understand so yeah, yeah how if that's someone's protest in their mind um or or at least their hang up like what what do you say to that <laughs> yeah and no, I, I again i think i understand very well um what's behind the question there because you know I, I know people like this certainly and and i probably functioned that way at one point in my life too i just can't remember when that was um but, you know, how, how would I, what would I say to someone like that? I'd say, well, I, I wish you the best of luck. If if I know them and I'm friendly with them, I might joke a little bit with them and say, I wish you the best of luck finding out the one meaning. Because hmm. <laughs> it's eluded people for a very hmm. long time. And both Judaism and the church and its wisdom has understood that for most of its history until relatively recently. But I disagree with you. But I'm not going to tell you you shouldn't do that because that's an exploration I think that people have to have and they have to find these things out on their own. See, I, I won't, I really don't, you know, in, in settings, in church settings where I sometimes speak and I know that's a diverse group out there, I make it really clear to them, I'm not here to change you. I was just asked to come and talk about what I think about X, Y, or Z. And I really believe that when people have certain life experiences and they're ready, that's the kind of that's the time to have conversations with them. It's it can't be sort of forced upon them to change. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, Melanie, you may have you know friends or relatives, and they sort of know what you're doing and what you're mm -hmm. about, and they might want to get you into a little bit of a debate. No, and I understand that. <laughs> no, that no. doesn't happen, especially at Thanksgiving yeah. or something. So. You know, I think the the um, I really think the path of wisdom, for the most part, is to never debate, but to talk if they want to, and to make it really clear that 
See, Brian McLaren has a great way of going about this. I don't know if you've heard this, but he he talks about you know relatives that see things very differently than mm-hmm. he does, and um, you know they'll say, "Well, I believe this, this, and this." You know, Christian nationalism, or you know, mm-hmm. Moses or the Pentateuch, whatever. And Brian will just say, "Hmm, well, I I think differently about that," <laughs> and that's it, huh. right? Interesting. Because he's he's that shows them enough respect to like not have to sort of argue with them right away. But it also makes it clear that I, I think differently about that. And if they want to talk about that, well, then you can find ways to just talk about it in a way that doesn't seem like a debate is happening. And at the end, there's going to be a winner or a loser. Mm. Because the things that I think all three of us. The, the ideas, even if we're in different places, which we, you know, we probably are because we're individuals, right? But the things that we entertain in our minds now, or even the conclusions we've come to, we might not have been ready to come to X number of years ago. And life experience happened. Nothing has changed my view of just the nature of the Christian faith and what the Bible is and what does it mean to read it than my own experiences in this life. And I know that sometimes we're told by our more conservative brothers and sisters, do not trust your experience because you're sinful. And that's the devil talking to you. (laughs) And, well, I think differently about that because our experiences (laughs) are where God meets us. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I take very seriously, I don't, you know, my experiences are not outside of criticism. but. You know, when like, um, you know, uh, Gary, your daughter, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I can't believe this. <laughs> I, I think it's really important to listen to that experience that she's having and letting that be, again, that's sort of a path to communing with God. And And I know, again, I know what people say. They say, well, then how do we know if we're right? Right. If we just let our experiences go, and my answer is, hold on to your hats. You don't. <laughs> you don't know that you're right now. You can have the strongest view of the Bible that you want, and you still don't know that you're right. Mm. Right? Wow. Because you don't yeah. actually know the Bible is the Word of God, do you? <laughs> Who knows that? You believe it, <laughs> but you don't mm. know it. Mm. Right? We don't. There. What we know and what we don't. What we know is overrated. You know, and I think that's part of what life experience can help show us that we're very limited in our knowledge and we don't have to have perfect knowing in order to know God and understand God and, and have a relationship with God. We, that, that hopefully doesn't have to happen because I'm hoping God is a bit bigger than what we can conceive, what we can understand. But again, that's that's already too far, I think, for many people who are very much sort of beholden to a notion of the Bible that pretty much is God spe- it's God's love letter to you. God speaking right. to you, this is what you have to do. And if that's what they believe, I can be friends with them and hang out with them, and it's fine with me. But if they ever want to talk, if they ever have a question, if they ever like one day come up to me, and this has happened many times, People like come up to me and they look left and right to make sure nobody sees that they're talking to me. And they go, you know, <laughs> Pete, I'm reading in the Bible and like Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 don't fit together. Okay. That person's ready for a different kind mm. of conversation. Or, mm. you know, I'm reading the book of Isaiah and I get to chapter 40 and it's like I'm reading a completely different book at this point. Okay. Mm. That's, that's a person who's noticing things in the Bible. They're noticing these fractures in the Bible where the whole, you know, inerrancy Jenga tower is beginning to crumble down around them. Mm. And they'll start seeing the Bible in a different light, hopefully, over time. Yeah. Can you can you maybe speak to this? And I don't want to take us too far afield, but um, my priest and I were having a conversation about the Bible, and in particular, the juxtaposition between the oral tradition that was um, kind of the perennial understanding of these sacred stories. And then once we jump from uh, oral stories to the printed word, something seems to have changed. Um, whereas yeah. in oral tradition, 
there's a lot more freedom. There's dynamism. The story does change. There's an inflection. Uh, maybe whoever is telling the story spins it a little bit differently. And yet, printing press, English, sola scriptura, now everything is set in stone. It's right there in plain mm -hmm. English. Um, can you talk maybe a little bit about that? Is he on to something by saying that maybe we've lost some of the beauty of these stories and the beauty of our tradition by saying, well, it's right there in plain English, so just take it yeah. and accept it? I mean, that's a pretty common thought, Gary, um, and mm -hmm. I, one that I would agree with as well, that there's something about orality that already has a built-in flexibility where you can adjust depending on the context, depending mm -hmm. on um, the circumstance. And, you know, we even have that example in the four Gospels. They're written, but they still, there are four of them, and they don't always agree. In fact, sometimes they have disagreements about how to address certain issues. Mm -hmm. And because there's a flexibility built into that, right? So so that's just something worth mentioning there. The the kind of flexibility that you have in oral literature, which is more like an organic growing thing over time, you see those kinds of things happening even in the written word of the Bible. Mm -hmm. You see changes and differences, which I think is again one of these beautiful things. But um yet when you write things down, the the flexibility really takes a big hit. And it's this word here we have to deal with, or is this story here that we have to deal with? And it becomes a lot more, it, it invites a legalism, I think, to yeah. the text, where you have to sort of ferret out and parse every last syllable of it to know the mind of God, because there it is written down. And it's forever locked that way, and it ceases growing and developing. Mm. So there is there is a downside. You know, it's I mean, the Bible is not going anywhere, and I don't think it should. That's why I think the corrective to that for us today is not to say, well, oh, well, we have this written word, let's just make do with it. It's actually to realize that people of faith have realized, since even before there was a final Bible, that these stories have to be somehow adapted and brought into our current moment in order to remain alive and to speak to us. And I think that's a really, really good and powerful lesson for people to, uh, to sort of ponder and think about when it comes to the Bible. It's written at a time, at times that are so far removed from us. You know, the biblical writers, never, it never dawned on them to ask some of the questions that we have to ask in the world we live in today. So what do we do? Do we just go back to that old world and just do what they did? Or do we have to ask ourselves, how do we bring this whole scriptural tradition into our time and place? How do we have a conversation between our own moment and this ancient witness? That's called theology, and that's not easy to do. That's hard work. But again, I think that's that's the gift that that's the opportunity we have to take this tradition seriously enough to bring it into our own circumstances which don't mirror the biblical days at all hmm. well i feel like we could talk about this forever pro probably because the bible is one of the most complex books we've ever had yeah. um but we are running out of time so I want to end with the question that we try to ask everyone, um, because I think getting into all of this can feel, it can make us feel despair, or it can make us feel like our, the, the rug has been pulled out from underneath us, or, you know, the whole, like our whole worldview can feel shattered simply by talking about some of this stuff with the Bible. Mm -hmm. Um, so so we want to end with the hope, which is, you know, for you as a biblical scholar, as a professor, as someone who writes about the Bible and wrestles with it constantly, when you look at the future of the Christian faith, what gives you hope? I think it's, you know, we're passing through this modern period where we're asking the kinds of questions we're asking here. But I think at the end of the day, and at least I hope that 
passing through all this will remind us that our hope is actually in God and not in our understanding of the Bible. Those two things aren't the same. And I think confusing those two things has been part of the problem. So, and I, and I, you know, again, I I can't predict anything. So, but I just, you know, I teach young people and I hang out with people and I talk a lot about this stuff. And I, I see more and more people willing to articulate that they want a relationship with God, but they can't deal with reading the Bible literally. And I think what that does is it actually sort of pushes you into an immediacy with God's presence that sometimes a a literal reading Bible can keep you from. Hmm. In other words, it takes the safety net that we've created out from under us, and it says, here you go. <laughs> Are you going to trust God or aren't you? Hmm. And to me, that's that's the that's the hopeful thing to you know, to, to have that be more the expression of the Christian faith than the Bible says uh, evolution's wrong. Or the Bible says God hates gay people. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, that's, that's what I'm after. I'm, I'm looking at um, a, a way of responsibly engaging the Bible and really taking it seriously, but also realizing that our real trust is in God and God is above and beyond all this, always out ahead of us. Hmm. And I, I think struggling with these questions actually helps move us in that direction. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Well, and it does seem like, as you have said, that taking the Bible seriously means wrestling with it and dealing with some of the inconsistencies and and actually having the courage and the faith to have a dialogue with it and say, look, I, I know this is what it said at that point in time. I'm not sure that that's a universal truth. And so I'm going to have the courage and the relationship with God to to maybe push up against this and have mm-hmm. a dialogue with it. So, yeah, I think right. that's beautiful. All right. So Melanie said that was our last question. That was our last serious question. So we want to end with just some kind of rapid fire, rapid fire, fun questions. If you're game, if you're, if you're okay with that. Um, it depends so on what you mean by fun, but go ahead. <laughs> okay. All right. So just go with your gut, quick answer. You know, these would be great. So I know you're a Yankees fan. Um, so yeah. who's your favorite Yankee of all time and why? Oh my goodness! I can't answer that. What a dumb question is that? How can I possibly, <laughs> possibly answer that question? I'd say probably, um, oh gosh, Thurman Munson, who was wow. the Yankee catcher in the 1970s. Yeah. yeah, so that's that's when I came of age, baseball wise. But uh, he okay. he died tragically in a in a plane crash uh, mm-hmm. in 1979. So that put an end to that. But. That, that's and he's the only major league player I ever touched. I, sh- I shook his hand when I was very young and he put his arm around me as he walked into the stadium. Wow. Wow. So that was sort of a thrill for me. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's, that's that. Wow. Yeah. I don't even, I don't even know that name. <laughs> Let's be real here. <laughs> My dad's a Red Sox fan. So I, I'm so yeah. sorry. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I think I mentioned earlier that you're a professor. So I'm curious, is, can you think of anything just like wild or just like totally off the wall that one of your students has said in class about the Bible or faith in general? Um, yeah, well, one student once said, I think we should just add books to the Bible. <laughs> so that I said, not sense to me. That's <laughs> funny. <laughs> All right. So I saw on Facebook the other day that you just started your sabbatical. So what are you looking most forward to in the next few months as you're kind of off from teaching and all that good Mm. stuff? Uh, Seriously, I think just to stop the pace and remember who I am. Mm. And that's not a depressing thought. I just, I'm looking forward to just like having a different rhythm. Mm. Um, I'm doing some work, of course, too, but just having a different rhythm day to day. I feel that. Yeah. Uh, since since you're an author and a scholar, I am wondering if you can p- point out a book that's like one of your favorite books you've ever read. Oh, another question that I hate because <laughs> doesn't I mean, have to be it doesn't have um, to be like the favorite. Just you know, the one, one of your favorites. 
Yeah, I probably would um, look at, uh, oh gosh, uh, John Levinson, who is a favorite of mine, uh, wrote a book back in the 80s uh, called Creation and the Persistence of Evil. And I like it because I read it, you know, a long time ago, and it sort of gave me, in a way, permission to wrestle with, like, the ancient context of the Bible, and also your own religious tradition, and taking what the authors wrote really, really seriously, and sort of combining those three things that are sometimes in tension, but weaving sort of out of that some sort of a, a way of moving forward. So, Yeah. Nice. All right. So since this podcast is called Holy Heretics, I'm assuming that maybe at one point in your life, given your view of Scripture, that you've been called a heretic. Is that true? And, and what was the reason for it? Um, yeah, I mean, I was, I've been called heterodox, which is not the same thing as heretic. Heretics burn. Heterodox just mm. get thrown out of the church. <laughs> mm. So, um, or told, or they're told not to talk at all. But yeah, I mean, it's 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 happened in one way or another, especially online. And uh, you know, I just I don't. It doesn't phase me because I think I'm seeing more about them than I am about me. Mm. <laughs> I love it. Well, Pete, thanks so much for this. Um, I think we could talk about the Bible for years and still not completely yeah. unpack all of it. So for anyone who wants more information about you, your podcast, or, or your books, uh, where can we direct them? Uh, just, you know, to our website, thebiblefornormalpeople.com. That's everything's there from, you know, our podcast, the books that I've written, and, uh, you know, speaking stuff that, uh, you know, which is few and far between now, but... Um, because because of the COVID thing, you know, we're not getting right. out too much. But um, yeah, that's probably just the best place to go. And you know, I'm on Facebook and uh, Twitter and Instagram too. So you know, people yep. can always check that out. And I'll make sure to link to all that in our show notes. But I, since you have so many podcast episodes, I'm wondering for someone who's never heard of this stuff before and is just wanting to like dip their toe in, do you recommend they start at episode one and go in order or just start with the most recent oh, one? Or? You know what? I think what I would do is, because uh, we have different guests, but there are sometimes episodes that Jared, uh, Jared Bias, my co-host and I, we do together. And those, I think, are good ways of getting more quickly into the things that we mm. think. Mm. And um, and also, we both do solo episodes. Um, and I just yeah, did one just on where the Bible that. came from. Yeah, so we do this. Uh, so I would look uh, on the podcast and just search for the joint episodes or, or the solo episodes and just see which one strikes your fancy. And, and don't worry about the perfect place to begin. Awesome. Perfect. Well, thank you for that. And like I said, I will make sure to link to all of this in the show notes so that people can find it easily. And Great. Uh, for listeners, we do highly recommend his podcast. It's been so helpful for us. And um, there's a ton of episodes. So he talks about basically everything you could think of. So we definitely recommend going there. Um, well, thank you, Pete, so much for your time. We really appreciate it. And um, we really appreciate your wisdom today as well. Sure, Melanie. Yeah, I appreciate it. And you too, Gary. Yeah. Thank you. Yep, absolutely. As we said, we highly recommend his books and his podcast if you're interested in learning more about the Bible. And don't forget about our upcoming live course, Making Sense of the Bible Post-Deconstruction. We aren't scholars, but we have done a ton of research and compiled the excellent work of many scholars and theologians into this course to help all of us make sense of this text that is at the heart of the Christian faith. The course, if you didn't hear at the beginning, will be held in July, and it's live, and it is being offered on a first-come, first-served basis to Patreon supporters only. So head to holyheretics.org and click on Support on Patreon to become a patron and reserve your spot in the course before they fill up. Next week, we will be chatting with Joey, who is the host of Dismantle Podcast, and we'll be talking about two topics that people ask about a lot. How do you find community if you don't feel safe at church anymore? And then how do you have discussions, not arguments, with people with whom you disagree? 
Both are really difficult topics, but Joey's experience as someone who has stayed in the church throughout his whole deconstruction process gives him great insight on both. So make sure to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss it. This episode was produced by the Sophia Society. Music is by Faith and Foxholes, and sound engineering is by Joshua Mudge. 